audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. The text this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And it reads this way. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is planned of that was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God may, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Um, don't even know where to start this morning. Just my gratitude uh, today. And I feel like I feel like Paul a little bit the beginning of his letters when he would just spend like the whole first chapter thanking God for the people he's writing to. Um, thankful for Eric stepping in to preach last week. He's been on the job two weeks and he's already <laughs> bailing me out. Um, I let him know on Thursday two weeks ago, uh, like the week of, asked if he could preach and he stepped in. I'm so grateful for him. Thankful for the staff here at Emmanuel Church that, man, just Stepping into all kinds of roles while I was out. I'm thankful for the elders here that were fulfilling all kinds of pastoral care duties while I was gone. I'm thankful for my wife. Caring for three crazy kids while I was with my dad in the hospital. I'm thankful for you and the countless prayers and texts and calls and meals. It's just the immeasurable grace of God through you towards me. I mean, you can't even, just can't adequately express it in words what that meant to my family, and so I'm really thankful for you, and, and ultimately I'm thankful for, for God, um, for his nearness to me and my brothers these last couple of weeks, you know, I have stories of God's faithfulness that uh, would fill up all of our time, I'd love to talk to you about those at some point, but briefly, um, just to fill you in on kind of where we're at, uh, we decided Thursday a week ago, so last Thursday, to move my dad to hospice, um, which is a really you ever had to make that decision. It's, it's not easy. Um, told he had a few hours to live once he was taken out of the ICU. Time he was receiving a lot of blood transfusions. He was on two life support drips. Um, 
So I, I literally, Friday night, sat in the room while my dad was dying. I mean, I watched him die. I mean, I, if you've ever been with someone in their last moments, uh, it's that. And I watched him dying and then struggling to breathe, non-responsive, mouth wide open. I planned a funeral with my brothers a week ago Friday for my father, only to watch my dad make it through Friday and get better Saturday, get better Sunday, get better Monday. And even this past Monday, the doctors are telling us, hey, this is the common peak before the descent. So we're not, you know, out of the woods this past Monday, only to have that same doctor call us on Tuesday and say that my dad has been fully healed of his wow. illness. Um, yeah. Yeah, praise the Lord. Uh, kidney failure to nothing wrong. Um, and uh, he wasn't bleeding much anymore. His kidneys had gone from almost done to better. They moved him out of hospice, which never happens. Um, not many people leave alive out of hospice. Uh, my father did, and the doctor, the word he kept using was inexplicable. Just inexplicable. I'm like, it is. It's called a miracle. Um, so they moved him out of hospice into a regular room where he is today, and we're keep praying for us. Uh, and one, it's just the emotional roller coaster of that. It's just crazy. It's exhausting, but um, keep praying for this next step decisions, um, you know, from places my dad will live, the care he will receive, all those things. Just pray for myself, pray for my brothers um, through that. But it's been a wild three weeks, and um, yeah, praise the Lord, you know, he's, he's done a miraculous work. So thank you again. Thank you for praying. Continue to pray. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, um, if you were here last week, you heard an awesome sermon, and if you weren't here last week, you should listen to it from Eric. But a couple of weeks ago, we began a four-week sermon series on our vision statement as a church, that, you know, Emmanuel Church desires to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. And we really emphasized that first week, not, not the vision statement itself, we're going to do that over the next three weeks, but we emphasized the desire that should reside underneath the vision statement. That we will never be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond until we truly desire to be that. That to emulate this type of identity and behavior is to first possess the holy affections that propel us to seek that end. So we talked about how in 2023 and beyond, we, we will seek to pray that the Spirit of God just produces in us the, the holy desires and affections to be these kinds of people that we desire to be. That these affections begin with desire and delight, as we saw the last two weeks ago, for God's glory in Christ. And then this week, the next logical step in that is as we're desiring God's glory in Christ Jesus, as we are affectionate for his glory, we will then be affectionate for one another. We'll have the desire to see one another grow to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Delight in one another. We're going to let Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, kind of be our catalyst in unpacking just this first portion of our vision statement this morning. That Emmanuel Church desires to be a diverse family of disciples. A diverse family of disciples. Each word there is equally important. Diverse family disciples. But each word is held together by a common person, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. 
would pursue diversity because Jesus is redeeming people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And we want our church to reflect that diversity. We consider ourselves a family because of our new identity in Christ Jesus. That we are now brothers and sisters with a common father, namely God himself. And we're all disciples. We're in Christ. Learning from Christ as his students. He's our teacher. He's our Lord. We follow him with our lives. So by the time we get to Ephesians chapter 3... Paul has pretty much established, if we were doing an expositional study through this book, which I hope one day we will, Paul has pretty much established two major themes in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 1, God begins this process of reconciling all of creation to himself. And then the major theme that comes out in the second chapter is that he has united the church in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 begins with a clear explanation of the gospel first 10 verses, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It was through the grace of the Lord Jesus and his grace alone that we are saved, that we are brought life. He does it all. And then in Ephesians 2, it ends by explaining one of the foundational gospel effects of this new life in Christ. That effect being a new unified people, Jew and Gentile, coming together in Christ Jesus to demonstrate the radical reconciliation the gospel brings about in these new, diverse, unified people. And Paul arrives here at chapter 3 of Ephesians, and he almost begins to move into this period of thanksgiving. <coughs> but he delays in his thanksgiving here at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 3 in order to expound a little more on what he calls this mystery of Christ. That Gentiles are now fully included into the people of God. You see it there in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he pauses and he kind of goes on this aside that takes us through verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 3. He'll pick up his thought from verse 1 again in verse 14. But he's on this aside that takes us from verse 2 all the way through verse 13. And all three of the key identity markers for us here at Emmanuel Church, diverse family disciples, can be seen here in our text for this morning. So let's unpack it first. We at Emmanuel Church, we desire to be diverse, diverse. We are an assorted group of individuals, all united in Jesus. An assorted group of individuals, all united in Jesus. Now, what Paul has established in Ephesians 2 that carries over here in Ephesians 3 is that the people of God now remade and reformed and reconciled. They are made up now of Jews and Gentiles, or non-Jews. Paul himself, throughout these verses, he discusses his specific call to be a minister, a pastor to the Gentiles, to the nations. And the gospel is now good news for all nations, for all people groups, for all tribes, for all tongues. Paul explains as much when he begins to unpack what he means by mystery here. That word occurs four times in these verses, this notion of a mystery. You know, when the New Testament uses that word mystery, it's referencing something that may have been obscure or a little hidden in the Old Testament that's now been made known in Christ Jesus. No, it wasn't that that truth wasn't present in the Old Testament, but it was like looking through a, a dim mirror, right? Couldn't see the clarity of it. And now it's been made clear in Christ Jesus in the New Testament. For example, you know, Gentiles were included, could be included in the people of God in the Old Testament. 
but it wasn't as clear as how, how many, what nations could be included. I mean, Ruth's a good example of this, right? Ruth was a Moabite, right? An enemy of the Jewish people, yet she was brought in to the people of God. But the full inclusion of the Gentiles wasn't fully made known until Christ came and began reconciling all people to himself. Follow me so far? Track with me? So that's the mystery here that's been revealed. That Jews and Gentiles are now one body in Christ, constituting the church. But diversity in the local church does not just include racial or ethnic diversity. We desire that. No doubt. But it reflects, uh, but diversity is actually broader. That diversity, we desire at Emmanuel Church diversity in many ways. We desire generational diversity. We desire gender diversity, males and females. We desire diversity in socioeconomic status in our body. We desire even political diversity, diversity in thought. We desire those things. But the key factor in all of those components of diversity is that we take those identity markers that we claim and we filter those identity markers through the word of the Lord. We let the word shape who we are. We celebrate our diversity and yet we pursue unity together based on the word. And here's the truth of the matter. Diversity in Emmanuel Church is worthless if we don't have unity undergirding it. Yeah. So the undergirding aim of diversity in the local church is unity. Yeah. It's unity. I mean, we could be the most diverse people group in the city of Birmingham, but be completely divided in our pursuit of Christ and his mission in this world. Now, our ultimate goal is not to pursue diversity. That's a goal. It is a goal, and it's a hope of ours. But the ultimate goal is to pursue unity. For it's in unity that the gospel demonstrates the wisdom and the glory of God. Yeah. And Paul points that out here in three ways. Three ways. First, Paul states that unity and diversity proclaims the gospel to earthly and cosmic powers. That unity and diversity proclaims the gospel to earthly and cosmic powers or entities. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in where? The heavenly places. The church has become a theater of sorts. For the display of God's abundant wisdom in the heavenly places. The Greek word here that we translate as manifold in the ESV, I don't know what translation you have, it means variegated or assorted. It's the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors in the Old Testament. This one garment made up of many diverse colors in his coat. And what Paul's communicating here by talking about the manifold wisdom of God, this one unified plan, wisdom of God being exercised in diverse ways, what he's communicating is that God's multifaceted wisdom is to be on display in how the church conducts itself as an alternate society in this world. That in the reality of our diversity, we still come together as one body in Christ, 
putting God's wisdom on display. And the most shocking thing about all of that, and we kind of skim by it, but I want to come back to it, is we're not only demonstrating the wisdom of God among earthly entities here, our community, our neighborhoods, fill in the blank, but we're demonstrating the wisdom of God in unity amid diversity to the heavenly powers and authorities. The beings in the heavenly places are looking to the church to see the wisdom of God. Principalities, powers, rulers, authorities, all created intelligences in the spiritual realm are looking at us to demonstrate how wise God is. That's a staggering truth. That's a reminder that the stakes are high. That unity and diversity is more than just saying we have a diverse church. But it's ultimately saying behold the wisdom of our God. Yeah. Unity and diversity. Second way it's demonstrated here in this text. It's the eternal purpose of God. It's the eternal purpose of God. Verse 11, this, so the wisdom of God on display in the unity and diversity of the church, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before time even existed in the mind of God, his purpose in the church was to bring together a ragtag, varied, assorted, redeemed, and diverse group of men and women to bring them together in such a way that the only explanation for their love, concern, and care is found in something beyond themselves. There's no reason any of us in this room should be hanging out apart from the gospel. We are so different in many ways. That the only common thing we have in common is what matters the most. That's right. And that's the cross resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then third, third, unity and diversity will never exist without sacrifice. Will never exist without sacrifice. You know, Paul states here in verse 1, he alludes to it again in verse 13, he is suffering because of his desire to reach the nations. To truly have unity and diversity is going to cost us a lot. It's going to cost us preferences. It's going to cost us comfortability. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us intentionality. It may even cost us financially. And to quote Erwin Entz, he said, There must be a dying to self for the sake of extending your grace towards your diverse neighbors. The cultivation of a beautiful community is a cruciform pursuit. It's a pursuit that requires us to die to ourselves to attain but it's through the sacrifice and the freedom and the liberty and life that's found in Christ that it makes this all worthwhile. You know, we cannot expect unity and diversity without laying down something in pursuit of it. And pursuing this, it's a beautiful thing. It's worth our time, our resources, our intentionality. You know, in this room, there exists men and women, boys and girls from different backgrounds, family histories, life experiences, countries. <coughs> in this room, there exists people in different places demographically, geographically, politically. 
You know, some of us have been Christians most of our lives. Some of us have been Christians less than a year. Some of us are single, some married, some parents, some grandparents, some no parents. And yet despite all of these differences, we come together every single week to the Lord's table. We break bread together. And we sing the gospel together. And we pray for one another. We lay down our lives for the sake of one another. Each person in this room looks out for the good of others in this room, and it's all because of our unity in Christ. It's in Christ Jesus that we are one body made up of a variety of individuals that cannot happen in any other entity in this world. It cannot happen. It can happen here among a people that have been redeemed or being changed by the gospel. For this is the wisdom and the glory of our God. But at the same time, we have a long way to go here, Emmanuel Church. We haven't yet arrived at that reality in quite the way we desire yet. And truth be told, diversity in the local church is oftentimes an overflow of diversity in our individual lives. So the question is, you know, we put so much emphasis on the church being diverse. The question is, is your life diverse? What does your daily life look like? What does the dining room table look like? Is it diverse or fairly homogenous? You know, as we challenge our church together, as we take on this challenge together and desire to be these kinds of people, may we challenge ourselves and our families in the process, not just our church. And may God get glory in our families as he's also getting glory in our church as well. So we desire to be diverse, first word here. Second, we desire to be a family. Family. A united group in Jesus, constituting one common family. Verse six, look at verse six. This mystery, he tells us here, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Heirs, members, body, partakers, these are all, this is all familial language, inheritance language. We are now not strangers anymore. We are brothers and sisters constituting one family in Christ. You know, I think oftentimes of our 21st century idea of church and how often it's so misunderstood as to what the church is. And so often churches cater to the whims of those attending. You know, we view those in attendance primarily as customers for a product you're going to invest your time and your money and your energy into. You know, membership in the local churches oftentimes seems less like a covenant and more like a commitment to a product. That as long as I, as this product I'm investing in keeps producing the results that I want, I'll keep investing in that product. But when the product doesn't do what I want anymore, I'll head back out into the marketplace and find a new shiny product that does. But that could not be farther from the truth of the New Testament. The local church is not a social club. You know, it's not like the Rotary Club or Sam's Club or a country club. You know, tithes aren't dues you pay in order to consume the amenities, right? If you're looking for amenities, Emmanuel Church is probably not the place for you, all right? (laughs) 
We don't commit our lives to one another primarily for social engagement and interaction. That's a part of it, no doubt. But the church is way more than just scratching your social itch. And also, the church is not a service provider where the customer has all the authority. As I just said, you're not customers. We are not a product for you to consume. The authority in the local church does not rest with you, and it does not rest with me. The authority in the local church rests in the unchanging, life-giving word of the Lord and the Christ that has given us his word. Everything we do here is shaped and propelled and undergirded by the Bible, not you and not me. Well, the church is not a club, it's not a product, but the church is the household of the living God. And this manifests itself in a variety of ways, but I'm gonna give you four. Four. First, as a family, we intimately know one another. We intimately know one another. Now, Christine has seen me, and Christine's my wife, for those of you that are new. Uh, she has seen me in my lowest of low moments and my highest of high moments. Now, she has seen me consumed with joy and she's comforted me when I'm awash with grief. And she has seen me on my best days and she bears with me on my worst days. And why am I open enough and vulnerable enough and intimate enough to let her in? It's because she's my family. It's because she's my wife and I trust her and I love her. And she loves me. At Emmanuel Church, we desire to know one another intimately. I'm not saying you have to intimately know everybody in this room. But you need to know intimately somebody. We desire to know each other, to trust one another completely. You know, this is where our DNA groups are so crucial here. We'll talk a little bit about this next week. Let me kind of prime the pump some. But for those that you may not know, the insider language here, DNA groups are gender-based groups of three to five individuals that meet together for the purpose of confessing sin, accountability, being open and honest with one another, repentance, all of those things, being reminded of the gospel. Most of them are birthed out of our GCs, our gospel communities, or small groups. And the effectiveness of those DNA groups rests solely on the ability to trust each other to possess the desire to expose deep, the deepest, darkest recesses of one's heart, to do that, to confess the places in our lives that we're even embarrassed to admit to ourselves, to be in a place to do that takes substantial trust, right? Trust that the one hearing my confession will not abandon me or forsake me or expose me or leave me or condemn me. A healthy family trusts one another enough to cultivate intimacy with one another. It takes time, but it will never happen if you don't invest that time. It will never happen. More on that next week. Second, families provide care and support for one another. Care and support for one another. I have witnessed this firsthand these past few weeks as so many of you have cared for my family in a hard time. I love it when babies are born here and meal trains are started before they even get out of the hospital. 
You know, I can give you countless examples this past year of men and women in our body walking through difficult, trying times, and many of you stepping into those relational holes and filling those with your presence and your care and your provision. In the family of God, there's going to be times where some of us are experiencing plenty and some of us want. Some of us will be on the mountain and some of us will be in the valley. And it's in those moments that those on the mountaintop step into the valley and carry those in the valley, through the valley, until we all arrive at this mountaintop again. Let me give you a tangible example of a way we can serve each other presently as a family. Uh, so this church keeps having babies, uh, and that's a great thing, all right? That's a great thing. You know, there are so many churches that would love to hear crying babies and disruptions in their services. They would love it because that reminds us of life and vitality and growth. But we have more kids here on a regular Sunday than we have adults, all right? So we have a lot of kids in this body. And I've loved the mutual care that we have for one another's children. I've loved it. I've seen it. You know, when Christina and I first came to visit you guys uh, literally a year ago this month, now, I don't think we met at Cahaba Brewing over here. I don't think I saw my kids most of the time. And I hope that's not because we're irresponsible. I, I hope. But it was because many of you were holding them and hanging out with them and playing with them, and keeping them company. It was a beautiful, truly beautiful thing. I mean, it felt like family, like you loved my family. I mean, I remember talking to Cherie Hall, one of the first times I met her, and she's like, how can we best minister to you? And I was like, love my family. Just love my family. You can disagree with things I say. Just love my kids. Love my wife. That's all I need. But with all these kids in this body, sometimes come logistical challenges, right? And Joy and James, our deacons of children's ministry, uh, they serve us in so many ways that none of us really see the extent of how they serve us. I mean, right now, Joy's back there caring for kids, all right? Her and James are sacrificing in ways that go beyond what many of us do, myself included, to serve our families. You know, there have been weeks at a time where they've stayed in the back keeping kids in the classroom. I think this past July, Joy was literally in the back all five Sundays in July, which is, a, one, a problem, right? But thanks be to God that she served our kids really well. And she never complained. She never complained. She did it with Joy. It's her name, Joy. That's what she does. So I want to make an appeal to you, even if you don't have kids. I want to make an appeal to you. Let us serve one another as the family of God by volunteering a week a month. The more people that serve, the less you have to volunteer. Um, but we're not going to talk about that. But volunteering a week a month in our preschool ministry. You know, let us not only serve when it's convenient for us. Let us serve in a way that costs us something. You know, we podcast this service every single week knowing that there are people back there that are going to miss the gathering. And so we hope they can come back and listen to it on the back end. And we want them to be able to hear the sermon and be a part of us, but let's be the family of God by continuing to provide care and support for one another. Maybe even through serving in a ministry area you may not feel naturally drawn to. It's all right. The Lord's going to use it to shape you more into the image of Christ Jesus. And the more people that serve, the bigger the rotation gets. You know, right now the rotation's once every four weeks. And let's just do some simple math real quick. Once every four weeks, that's one Sunday a month, 13 Sundays a year, that's 25% of the year. 
that people are not in the worship gathering because they're serving the body. It's a lot, and that's assuming they come every other Sunday, right? 25%. May we shrink that number down so that we can serve not just our children, but our families, our families and our volunteers. So that's my appeal. I pray she just gets ransacked after the service back there. Um, it would be a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but let's serve each other as the family of God as we serve our families in the family of God. Third, families give grace for the shortcomings of one another. Now, this whole notion of the family can feel a little idealistic, but we must approach it with realism. Not some pie-in-the-sky idealism that's unattainable. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the idealism we sometimes have around the church, and he calls it a wish dream. And he says this about the wish dream. It's a quote from him from Life Together. He said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Now he goes on to state that for genuine Christian community to exist, the wish dream must die. It must die. Why? Because we're all sinners. We make mistakes. We all stumble. Some of us in this room, we talk a big game about grace until we're the ones wronged. I put myself at the top of that list. When we keep a record of wrongs, sometimes tighter than the Lord keeps a record of wrongs. At least it feels that way. And we use it to beat down one another when we make mistakes. That is not the people of God. That's not the family of God. It's not becoming of people who have experienced the grace of God in our own lives. You know, to be a true family of Christ followers, grace and mercy and truth must characterize our relationships. If you're at this church and you're hoping to never be disappointed or frustrated or let down or even potentially angry sometimes in the body of Christ towards one another, then you will never find a home at this church or any other church for that matter. Those churches don't exist because those churches are full of sinners. So as a family of God, as the family of God, we give grace for one another in our shortcomings. Grace, we bear with one another when things are going well and when things are going poorly. And then fourth, families lay down our lives for one another. We've already talked about this a little bit with the sacrifice, the cost it takes in having a diverse body. Well, there's a similar cost when it comes to being the true family of God. There's no amount of money I would not pay. There is no amount of energy I would not expend. There's no length I would not go to if my wife or kids needed it. None. So too, it should be in the body of Christ. We're a family, and we lay ourselves down for the good of one another and the glory of Christ. So we desire to be a diverse family of disciples, Last word here, disciples. A common family pursuing together the ways of Jesus. Verse 12, look at verse 12. In Christ our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. 
And we're gonna, not going to spend too much time here this week. I want this identity piece to kind of launch us into next week when we talk about making the real Jesus known, what all that entails. But disciples are learners. Disciples are followers. You know, we're following and learning from our teacher, from our Lord, Jesus himself, through the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 12, we see four things that characterize us as disciples of Christ. Each of these things are undergirding. It characterizes how we approach God as we are disciples of the Lord Jesus. So really quick, we'll come back to some of these next week. First, our approach to God in Christ is collective. It's collective. Each week when we gather, each week when we meet with your GCs, we are following Jesus, learning from and about Jesus together. So often we think our walk with Christ is solely, primarily individual. And it is individual, no doubt. But we fail to realize that much of the means of our pursuit of Christ are communal endeavors, collective endeavors. I mean, there are 100, literally 100 one another's in the New Testament. 100. So much of walking with Jesus involves other people. So as disciples, we approach God in Christ collectively. Second, our boldness in Christ is expectant. It's expectant. Each time we gather together as disciples, we should expect something from the Lord. We should pray boldly and sing boldly and listen boldly and believe boldly, expecting him to respond. I mean, do you have that expectation when you walk into this room each week? Do you expect to hear from the Lord? I mean, are you anticipating something from him, a word from him? You know, do you give much thought to it at all? Is this, has this all just become rote and routine to us? Are we bold enough to expect God to still act like he did in the Bible? to plead with him to manifest his presence among us in ways that would make us fall on our faces in awe and wonder. Are we ready for that? Do we believe he can do that? Do we believe he still heals people and raises people from the dead, brings life to dead places? Do we believe that? Do we believe he's still taking broken people and making them new? Do we believe that? We believe it. As disciples, we approach Christ boldly, boldly. Third, our access to God in Christ is total. It's total. We're sons and daughters now of our Father. Sons and daughters, we have full access through Christ into the presence of God. There's nothing left to be done pave our way into the presence of our maker. You know, this life is plagued with problems, right? In all of our days, we feel the direct or indirect effects of sin and brokenness in our lives every single day. But how often we lose sight that we have the absolute right and freedom, the absolute right and freedom by God's grace and his grace alone to enter at any time into the presence of our creator, of our father. We can bring him our needs and our concerns and our hurts. When crisis arises, is our first thought to access God's chambers in prayer. When blessing comes, is our first thought to access God's chambers in thanksgiving. 
the creator and sustainer of all things in this universe and in the heavenly places has granted you and I in Christ Jesus the privilege to rest our head upon his fatherly chest anytime we desire. Anytime. As disciples following our Lord, let us learn from Christ, our way of access, Christ Jesus himself, and let us approach the Father with no fear and no trepidation. Our access is total, complete. And then lastly, as disciples, our confidence in Christ is steadfast. Steadfast. You know, oftentimes when we fail to live our lives in ways that please God. And when we sin, when we fail, you know, our first inclination is to be like our first father and mother and hide and isolate ourselves, thinking that God is angry with us, that he's ashamed of us, that he's embarrassed of us. So we hide in these proverbial bushes and sew together these fig leaves just, just wallowing in our guilt and in our shame. But in Christ... As disciples of Christ, as those adopted by God through the work of Christ, our confidence before God is not in what we have done or not done for him. Our confidence in God is based off what Christ has done for us. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. And even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. A diverse family of disciples it's who we desire to be. We pursue this goal in the present. Listen, we pursue this goal in the present for this will be the reality of the future. The Apostle John writes of this future reality when he says that a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, nation, peoples and languages. They are standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they are crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And listen, listen, verse 11, and all the angels, listen, the heavenly powers, right? All the angels are standing around the throne watching the church Praise the Lord in the heavenly places. They're standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fall on their faces around the throne and worship God, saying, listen, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. The heavenly beings will look at a redeemed, diverse family of disciples for all of eternity, praising God for his wisdom. Staggering. That starts now. Starts now. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Father, I... I'm overwhelmed by the magnitude of how in your sovereign plan you have set apart the church to be a display of your glory and your wisdom. 
to the beings in the heavenly places and those around us here on the earth. It can feel overwhelming. If we try to bear that burden alone, if we try to take on ourselves with no help from you to be that here, we will fail. Praise be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that you have filled us with your Holy Spirit. And you're doing a work in us that will then overflow into a work out of us. And we truly, Father, we truly, I pray, desire to be a manifestation of your wisdom here. We are not perfect. We don't have it all together. We are broken people, but we have the hope of the gospel that we are being made new every day. That each day as we live these lives, as, a, as this diverse family of disciples, that you are shaping us and molding us more into the image of your son, Jesus. And that this, this ragtag group in this room of redeemed people May we act and live our lives in relation to one another like redeemed people. And may we be a display, oh God, of your glory to our community, to our nation, to our world, to the heavenly places. I thank you so much for these people. Continue to put in us holy affections for you holy affections, and may we stir up one another to holy affections. Love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.